You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce you to our fabulous guest today. We have Diego Piacentini, who is the Senior VP of International for Amazon. He is a member of Amazon's executive team and has been there for the last 10 years. He's responsible for all of the retail operations in five countries outside the U.S., including the U.K., Germany, France, Japan, and China. And prior to joining Amazon, Diego was the vice president and general manager of Apple Computer Europe, where he led operations in the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. But I got to meet Diego about a year ago, actually, in Patagonia. We were both there working um, as volunteers for an organization called Endeavor. And Endeavor is a really cool organization, maybe he'll tell you a little bit about it later, where they identify high potential entrepreneurs in the developing world. And we were there on the uh, International Selection Committee. I got to know him, was incredibly impressed, and now this is the second time he's come back to Stanford to uh, help in our classrooms. In fact, I understand that he's a closet professor. And so uh, hopefully uh, he'll get a chance to show us all of his skills. And I want to tell all of those people who are listening online and anyone who's in the class as well, you can follow us on Twitter at eCorner. Without further ado, Diego. The reality is that I'm a failed attempt to be a professor. So, um, and in fact, I'm going to start, good afternoon to everybody, by the way, uh, with uh, where a little bit of the four pieces of my career. Number one, as you can guess from the first two, I'm Italian. I was born in Milan, Italy. I'm a big Inter fan, just in case you're wondering. And uh, that's my, the alma mater I went to. That's my university. We are my graduate in economics. I actually worked at university for one year after I graduated on some research on econometrics. And uh, I was able to get a scholarship to go to Wharton. But then Fiat came hire me and I gave up the opportunity of going to Wharton and it turned out that the destiny brought me to work for Apple and for Amazon which is one of the most important things about uh, someone's career which is some point you have to be lucky to meet the right companies and I was very lucky to meet what are today among the two greatest companies. So um, what am I going to talk to you about today? Uh, Tina asked me to talk about one thing, and I'm going to translate it into basically two things, which is how do we run a global organization at Amazon? Uh, basically, almost half of Amazon $38 million of revenue comes from outside the U.S. You heard, Tina, that we have five countries. So you might wonder, wow, only five countries generate almost half of the revenue on Amazon.com. But obviously, it happens that those are the countries that matter in the world. It's Germany, Japan, U.K., France, and, and China. Uh, the other piece is how do we manage to keep innovating and obviously uh, make sure that all the countries innovate too? And how do we run a global organization at the same time keep innovating, keep inventing things? Now, uh, I'm going to create a little context. This is Amazon Gateway page in 1995. The company, by the way, is 15 years old. Uh, and uh, it started by selling only books. The most uh, 
watchful people in the audience might know this one thing that Amazon.com did not have when it was launched. There is no search box. Basically, you could not search books. You have to browse. And it was a million books. Now, the search thing was added a few days later, but it was funny that when they decided to launch, they were behind with the search technology, but they decided to launch anyway because you know, there's not much search around in the internet anyway. So um, second piece of the point. Today, Amazon has seven global sites, .com, UK, Germany, France, Japan, and Canada. As I said, almost half of the revenue comes from uh, the countries outside of North America. There is one thing in common among all those websites that although you might think that you know, Europe and Asia and the US, they all have different cultures, different way to purchase products. What we've been able to build in all those 15 years is a very common technology, customer experience, and shopping experience across the sites. You see they, they have pretty much the same look and feel. Uh, there is the same underlying technology. It, it re really, it's all the same. I'm gonna talk about this. How can you achieve this in a company that has now today 40,000 people, and especially how you can keep, as I said, and I emphasize on innovating in those uh, countries. Other piece, Amazon is a global company, and the first thing you want to understand is, by the way, the boxes are where the fulfillment centers are, the phones are where the customer service, and the A's is where the websites are. So what you're noticing is, uh, sorry, where the corporate offices are, what you're noticing is, Although we are in the countries that I mentioned, we have lots of operations in other countries. So for example, we have a customer service operation in Costa Rica. We have a development center in uh, South Africa. We have uh, several thousand employees in India where we have customer service, uh, software development, back office retail activity. Nothing, none of them is outsourced. Those are Amazon employees. They live in those countries. So we have several operations in countries where we actually do not have maybe a website. There's also customer service in Ireland. is a little hidden by all of the things there. Global strategy. So this is the first piece. Uh, although the company started by selling only books online, Jeff Bezos' idea and vision was always the same from day one, which is building a place where people can find and discover anything they want to buy online at the lowest possible price. That was already part of the vision. The important thing for a global company, for a company that innovates, is to make sure that you stick to the vision. And obviously you have many ways to change and be flexible because the strategy changes, the execution obviously changes, but keeping the same vision in mind, it's been very important and the same vision is exactly the same across all countries. Um, to the right, you'll lead, you read, we strive to be Earth's most customer-centric company. Start with the customer and work backwards. Clearly, you would never heard a company saying, oh, no, we don't want to be customer-centric. All companies say we're customer-centric. What you're going to learn today is what are the things that a company builds to make sure that customer-centric means something. Working from the customer backward means something. And I give you two examples. Number one, is the technology that you operate with. Everything, every single piece of code at Amazon has been written in-house. We have not bought any software from outside. Well, also because we're an e-commerce software when Amazon was born. Uh, 
we don't rely on external outsources. We think that's the main asset. Example of uh, customer centricity. When we launched the Kindle, one of the first things that we did was, uh, since it's so easy on the Kindle to order a book, we thought, well, customers might place an order by mistake. So what happens when you place an order, a small button says again, did you place an order as, did you, place the, did you mean to place the order, was it a mistake? So we give the customer the immediate possibility to cancel the order if it was a mistake. Usually, most retailers try not to take products back, try not to incentive customer to cancel an order. But this is an example of what customer-centric means. When we do and we work with uh, you know, new programs, new ideas, and we say start with the customers and work backwards, every time that we think a new program, we think, what is the customer thinking? What is the customer looking at? This is why, as a company, for example, we try to avoid marketing hypes. If you go on Amazon.com, usually you don't see things like, you know, everything 99% off, and usually what companies do is raise prices and then say there is a promotion. Or, uh, you know, all the marketing messages or commercial messages that you see around. We try really, as a company, philosophy to avoid. We tell customers what the numbers are, what the discounts is, and try to be as truthful as possible. So those are examples of being customer-centric. Core values. As a global company, one of the things that you need to make sure that all the core values are the same. The core values evolved into leadership principles, but I want to talk about those. Customer obsession, I think I gave an example or two before, so I don't have to repeat that. Uh, frugality. I'm going to give you another example, which is something that happened in China. We are in China since 2004. I was there in 2005, one of my frequent trips and reviews. Harry Potter, I don't know, whether five, six, or seven, was being published in Chinese and shipped by our operations. And the day after it was shipped, I was right there. And, uh, and the country manager was coming there and said, very, very proud. Our competitor dropped the price. We dropped the price right now. Remember the, the vision of lowest possible price. And he said, great, what's next? He goes, what do you mean, what's next? Well, how many Harry Potters did you ship yesterday at a higher price? He goes, 5,000. Okay, now we need to go back to those customers and give us those five RMB, which is less than a dollar, back. And this was like completely, the guy was completely out of his mind. What do you mean? They already paid, they have the product. Why give them the money back? And, uh, and, uh, and again, this is something that probably no retailer had ever done in China before, but you think the Chinese customers didn't like it? So this is an example where culturally, quote unquote, culturally, you wouldn't do it because Chinese customers are not used to do it, but as a global company with the same principle of customer obsession, it turned out it was the, not only a good thing for the customer, it was also the best marketing activity we've ever done for that year. Frugality, same thing. Company had not a lot of money at the very beginning, so there was a concept of frugality, meaning that if you go to a hotel, go to Motel 6, then go to Hilton. And that, this is just an example. It was not just about hotels, but I'm just giving an easy example to understand. And we need to make sure in all seven countries we're in, same approach happens. Ownership. Every single employee in the company has invested interest. We had, used to have stock options, now RSUs, at every single level of the company. Either you work at the reception or you're the CEO of the company. 
bias for action, which means if you see something wrong, fix it. Don't wait for some higher hierarchy person to tell you how to fix it. And I'll give you examples later. High hiring bar. Again, like for customer obsession, you never heard a company say, oh, we have a very low hiring bar. We hire crap. No, everybody thinks and they say they have high hiring bar. But again, and I'm going to talk about mechanisms. What is the mechanism that we use to make that happen? And one example is um, what we call bar raiser. A bar raiser is a person that usually doesn't belong to the department that is hiring the candidate that has veto power to not hire a person if he thinks is not the right person for the company. So let's say I'm hiring a software developer for the payment team. There's going to be a bar raiser that does not belong to the payment team that makes sure that the payment team is doing the right thing. Because what usually happens, especially in companies that grow fast, is that you're always desperate to hire people, you're always desperate to finish a project, and sometimes you compromise on the quality of the candidates. If you have a bar raiser from an external a group that does not have a vested interest, he will exercise the right thing for the company. So that's an example. And innovation, and you'll see this pervasive across this presentation. Um, what is this? This is our business model. Uh, this is actually the back of a napkin that my boss, Jeff Bezos, drew on in 2003 when we were trying to build a document that would express the business model. In the middle, you see growth, because in our business, growth is what really matters. So we start from the top, selection. In every single country, we have the principle of having the largest possible selection. We carry way more, many more products than any physical store can carry because of our model. We do this across all the countries, even though, for example, when we acquired the Chinese company, their model was to have few highly desired products, but not the tail of the selection. Selections obviously drives an improvement of the customer experience because the more products you carry, especially if you have them in stock and you ship them fast at the lowest possible price, the more you improve the customer experience that drives traffic to the website, that drives, you know, for example, external sellers that work on our marketplace platform that will add even more selection. And the circle just generates growth. Growth will generate for us a lower cost structure. And what do we do with the lower cost structure? Since we look at the long term, we keep lowering prices, and the lowering prices go back into improving the customer experience. This is the philosophy that every single new hire at the company in every country, from China to Japan to Germany, learns. The myth of best practices. You heard many, many times the word of best practices. Many companies, global companies, talk about best practices. Uh, the issue with best practices is that oftentimes they're just good intentions. So basically you see what the country does very well and you say, look, this country does this program very well. As a best practice, you need to try to do the same. In our business model, and I emphasize from our business model because there might be other business models where the best practices work, we basically say very draconian, in a very draconian way, everything is equal unless proven with data, and I emphasize unless proven with data, it needs to be different. Uh, the good thing is about when I joined the company that the company was so young, there was no legacy. There was very little legacy of uh, every country doing their own thing. And so that we're able to build this, everything is equal unless proven that needs to be different. 
It turns out to be that all customers around the world, being Chinese or African or European, they like low prices. They like the fact that we ship product fast, and we like the fact that we have a lot of products. The basic part, as trivial as it seems, is going to be the same. But there are differences. There are differences in the way that people pay, in the way that people ship, companies ship products. And this is an example of something proven with data. In China, the delivery system is different than in Europe and in the US. This is not a Photoshop thing. This is real. So uh, in China, so for example, we have something that is completely different than in the rest of the world, which is we own a big piece of the last mile delivery. You know, here in the States, when you see an Amazon box, it's probably a UPS truck or a FedEx truck or a USPS truck or whatever local carrier. So we lay our foundation on an existing logistic infrastructure. Same thing in Europe. Same thing in Japan. Japan, incredibly developed infrastructure. In China, we had to build our own delivery system. So these are Amazon employees that carry Amazon products and they deliver the products and guess what they get in exchange? Cash. Now they have a POS device for which a customer can slide their bank card or credit card. And that's the evolution of that. And I actually did try it, and I tried it myself. And believe me, it's really, really hard, especially when you have to carry a TV screen. And this is the way it looks, for example, our new schedule delivery checkout page. So if you look at the checkout page, that's where the difference is. Here is what you usually decide, you know, what kind of transportation you want, if you want a free super delivery or you want to pay for next day, this is the way it looks like in China. So this is an example of something that looks different, but based on the fact that we had data to prove that it needed to be different. Other example, Amazon Prime. This is going to be my first and only commercial break. Do you guys know about the Amazon Student Prime offer? Great. If you're a student, you have a .edu address, you can get Amazon Prime free for one year. What does Amazon Prime mean? It's about free two-day shipping. So you buy anything you want, you get free two-day shipping. The idea was, it really works in the US because you know, the US as China has one thing in common, the two countries, they're big. And to cross products, especially if you have a product in a warehouse in Florida and the customers live in Seattle, it takes a lot of time. So the idea was to let's make buying and shipping fast and immediate. And this is also an example where Innovation meant we made this decision, even though every single MPV analysis, free, cash, free uh, discounted cash flow analysis, any financial analysis would tell us we're completely crazy to give two-day shipping for free. And it turned out to be that it was highly innovative, customer liked it, and if you remember the cycle, the it cycle worked, and we could lower the cost of transportation so that now it cost us so much less for us to carry those products to the last mile delivery. And it works. So the idea was, the Japanese guys say, well, we shouldn't do it in Japan, because Japan, you know, we're so efficient. It takes anyway only one day. It turned out to be that we did Amazon Prime, we did it in all the four countries, but with a different level of service and cost. Today in Japan, for something like $20 per year, you get same day delivery in Tokyo. So you order within noon, you get it within 8 p.m. So that thinking helped us to force innovation and invent something that didn't exist before. So we had to change the cycle times within our fulfillment centers, 
rewrite the software for picking products. And innovation, again, was forced by a top-down decision to do the same things across the world. It goes into innovation. Um, those are the three principles that we often discuss in Amazon. First of all, this is, what is this? This is an example. This is clearly you're inside a car, it's raining outside, and your wipers don't work. So that's learned helplessness. What happened is in 1903, there was this lady called Mary Anderson that basically noticed that people, when it was raining, I don't know why, by the way, they picked a car without a windshield, but if you had a car with a windshield, what happened is that it was raining, and there was no windshield wiper. They were not invented yet. So every time the, custom, the driver would stop, get out of the car, and wipe the windshield, whether it's raining or... And she thought, wow, this is weird. But everybody was doing the same. Everybody was stopping, and there was, you know, there was not traffic, so it was not really a big inconvenience to stop. And she had an idea of a mechanical arm, which she patented with a, with a blade. The mechanical arm was basically maneuvered from inside the car to clean the wipe, the, the, the windshield. And that's an example of innovation driven by the fact that she didn't want to learn the helplessness of having to stop every time the car for such a big inconvenience as wiping the car off. This is an example. And uh, not only the invention was laughed at at the very beginning, this was even before the, the Ford A model was invented, but it became, by 1913, 10 years later, basically all the cars had mounted on board her mechanical device. I said before, good intentions don't work. Uh, as a student, probably just me, you guys are so much better, every time that I had a test, I found myself had to study until 4 o'clock in the morning because I was always late. And I'm sure that it's different these days. And I was always not, and I always said the same, said, oh, next time I'll do better. And guess what? The good intentions never worked. I always was up until 4 o'clock in the morning to study for the last test. So if good intentions don't work, what works? Mechanisms. And uh, I'll give you this example. This is a table. Uh, at Amazon, we do as top managers to the lowest level, every two years, three or four days in customer service, just listening to phone calls and replying to emails of angry customers, and I'm telling you, it's really, really hard. And we also work in the fulfillment center for like three or four days to learn about things that happen on the floor. Until 2002, by the way, that was not only, that was not a training, that was mandatory because we, we couldn't model the, work, the labor workforce and we often found ourselves with growth much higher than our forecast. And at some point, everybody in December had to drop the pen and went to work in the distribution center because we do not have enough labor. That necessity became training. So in this training, this was specific an example of Jeff Bezos. He picks up the phone call of this customer saying, you know, the table is scratched. I have to return it. And the customer service rep sitting next to Jeff, that was, you know, basically his mentor, said, oh, yeah, I know the story. We're, I'm sure that we're going to ship it the same conditions. We're going to ship the same, the, not a different table, but has the same problem. So basically what happens there, that obviously our intention was to ship the right table, but but we found out that the packaging was wrong, but there was no closed loop between customer the customer was complaining to customer service. The customer service had no way to communicate to either the buyer of that table 
or the distribution center that that table had a repetitive problem, which is the packaging was basically scratching the surface of the table. So, again, we obviously have the good intentions to ship products that are not broken. And uh, as I said, if good intentions don't work, what does work? In this case, mechanisms would work. And what is the mechanism that we thought? By the way, this is a case where we did not invent the mechanism. We basically copied, got inspired by what another company did before. I don't know if you recognize this. This is a car plant. And the guy is raising his hand. And there's a kind of, you don't see it, but there's a cord. This is a Toyota plant here in the US. And this is a famous concept of and on cord. So in the Toyota plants, uh, and they invented that several years ago, the idea was if a worker in the floor finds a defect that repeats itself at least twice, he not only has the power, but has the obligation to pull the cord. What does the cord do? Stops the entire floor. Nobody works until that specific defect is being fixed. Now, this is another example where any financial analysis, if you had a controller said, you must got to be crazy. I mean, the cost of stopping the plant most of the time is way higher than the small defect. By the way, this is not for big defect, for any defect. This is why, by the way, for many, many years, Japanese cars were way much better than the quality of US cars. It's not just for that reason, but that's an example. So what we did was basically same concept. If the customer service rep, a customer service rep, hourly rep that makes $15 an hour in some remote customer service center, either is in the Midwest or in Costa Rica or in India, sees that the same product got the same table that we saw before, he basically pulled our cord, which is basically pushes a button, and the product disappears from our website. And an email goes to the buyer of that product, goes to the fulfillment center, and basically the mechanism is until the defect is eliminated, in that case, the packaging of it is fixed, the product is no longer for sale on Amazon.com. The innovation here is, is that you do not want to have bureaucracy in your way. I mean, there are companies where if a customer service rep paid $15 an hour, does that, gets fired right away. And our company gets rewarded. And again, it's about, and this is across the world. It's not that Germany gets not to do it, or France gets not to do it, or China gets not to do it. They all do the same. Uh, complete processes, and you, I'm sure that many of you has learned and will learn, is not just about building the tools, which is the mechanism, in this case, the end cord, but then the hard part becomes, which is making sure that across all your countries gets adopted, so you need to have mechanisms in place to measure that and gets inspected because the tool itself could be wrong. So building the tools, updating the tools, and inspecting the tools. Another piece of innovation, persistent pace. Uh, WD-40. I don't know how many of you recognize this product. The, when it was initially thought was from some you know, anti-rust product for rocket missiles. And uh, it turned out to be that, and I'll go fast here, uh, the word WD is water, water displacement 40th attempt. It means that luck and persistence 
made and created this product that turned out to be completely different than what ideally, and sorry, originally the inventor wanted to do, but it turned out to be an incredibly successful product. That's why persistent pays. And I'm giving an example of persistence and repetition and why learning from mistakes is important. And I was in 1999, we, we saw eBay doing auctions, and we had a great idea, we should do auctions too. But it was a very non-successful program, not thought through. The evolution of auctions, that was the first attempt, became Z-Shops, this would be prehistory for many of you guys. Z-Shops was basically an idea of fixed price, uh, not an auction price, but it didn't work because we, we had no way to drive traffic to that until the aha came in 2000, which is great. The same products that are hidden in this Z-Shop corner of the store, we're actually gonna add it to the detail page of Amazon, which is the highly most trafficked part of the site. So that customers, they wanna buy Harry Potter, they could go there and they could also see, they could buy from other sellers a lower price Harry Potter. So this was our third attempt. Then the fourth attempt became what used to be called marketplace. So the fact of hosting many, many, many sellers within the company. This was not only perseverance, but it was also the fact that it was not liked within the company. I mean, all the buyers, all the retail people are saying, well, we must be crazy. We're hosting competitors on our website. And the idea was that's exactly what we want to do. The vision, remember, Earth, uh, Earth's largest selection, this change in strategy was we cannot build the largest selection ourselves alone. We need to have sellers. And this is the way it was created. Maximize experimentation. Making mistakes is incredibly important for an innovative company. So we, have, we, we do crazy experiments at Amazon. We, we do lots of web labs, A-B testing. Sometimes you see a treatment of a product, um, a program. You'll see different uh, versions. And until statistically significant change happens, we can implement the change. But we make lots of mistakes there. The important thing is that you create an environment where making mistakes within a company is okay. It's encouraged. We do have an award in Amazon called the Just Do It Award, which is a big used Nike shoe that we give to people that actually did something innovative outside of their task. So two requirements, it needs to be outside of your normal task and it has to work, it has to be something smart. So we do incentive, we do incentive mistakes as long as you don't repeat the same mistake, it's fine. Stay heads down, this is very, very important, which is focus on the long term. Uh, when the company in the early 2000, late 1990s, uh, had a lot of critics, people that did not understand the business model. Uh, this is an example of Business Week said, this is when Amazon, I think uh, Barnes & Noble launched the barnesandnoble.com website, Walmart launched the walmart.com. Basically the comment of the article is, all right, you children, Amazon, you played enough with their toy. Now the big boys, Walmart, and uh, Barnes and Nobles are coming online and they're gonna toast you. That was Amazon.toast. I wasn't in the company yet, it was 1998. Jeff Bezos had these big all hands because people was really worried about all those, uh, um, there was another one, Amazon.bomb. This is, by the way, that article, the, the cover says the idea of Jeff Bezos of creating e-commerce was a silly idea. Um, the employees were worried about it, what's gonna happen to us? And he said, we need not to be afraid of what external people think. We're ready to be misunderstood if we believe strongly what we do. The only th 
type of people we need to be afraid of is our customers if we make mistakes for them. By the way, things change quickly in the same barons. Now, totally things are different. And, uh, and as uh, following the wave of all the lovers of Amazon, there used to be all the haters, usually media, and it's human nature to copy and perpetuate itself. Last, um, and again, a great example of how to make sure that the focus on the long term, which generates innovation, is very, very clear. This is Jeff Bezos' first year older letters. It's all about the long term. Because of our emphasis on the long term, we may make decisions and weigh trade-offs differently than other companies. This year oldest letters today gets attached to every single year shareholders' letters to just show the vision being the same that we have changed the strategy and the execution, but that's also always wanted. Uh, that's always what we wanted to mean. And I think this is the last slide. This is the second piece of the commercial. We always want to recruit great people. You guys are great people, so if you want to think about working at Amazon, this is the way to do it. Sorry, this is the way to do it. And I think we're ready to take questions. You want to say something? Great. Thank you very much. That was absolutely terrific. Great. So you guys know the drill. It's up to you to ask some probing questions. Who's got the first question in the audience? Yes, George. What kind of? Uh, I'm sure this varies from country to country. What's like a general like strategy that, you, that Amazon uses when looking into you know entering a new market in a new country with like cultures? Is it like initial? You know, do you? buy a company there like in Joyo for China or do you try to set up shop first yourself or how does that process work? So the question is, for those who haven't heard, is what is the process or the methodology being used by Amazon to enter new markets, for example, new geographies or new product lines? Do we buy companies? Do we create companies? Uh, there's no one answer because we've done all of them. The answer is yes, yes, yes. So for example, China, as you mentioned, was an acquisition. Uh, but France and Japan, we created it from scratch. Uh, UK and Germany were a small acquisition at that time. So it's a mix, and it all depends by opportunities. For example, we had two opportunistic situations, UK and Germany, and we just picked them up. Sometimes you're lucky. Or by what you want to do. And the great example I want to give you is Japan. Japan, for those who don't know, is the land of joint ventures. Everybody has a joint venture in Japan. They all do things together. But our idea was, and everybody was telling us, if you want to do Japan, you absolutely want to have a joint venture. But we did not have, want to have a joint venture because we thought we had a clear vision in mind and we didn't want to share that vision with others, had assets in mind. And we're very stubborn in building our Japanese operations with our strategy without using joint ventures. And everybody we're trying to do business with wanted to have a joint venture. The logistic company, they wanted we had to carry our products to the customers, wanted to do a joint venture. And we said, no, we just want to buy your services. So it really depends on, on, on the situation. Uh, Kindle was kind of a surprise from Amazon, you know, being a retailer and actually managing a manufacturing line. So what other areas is Amazon looking, if not secret? No, well, I'm not going to tell you the secret ones. I can tell you the ones that we have that are not secret. But anyway, the, the Kindle, so the question is, Kindle is something that is uh, completely different from our business model. We started building and manufacturing hardware, which is unheard of for a retailer. What else are you guys differently, doing different? Well, uh, 
the cloud computing. AWS is a great example. AWS stands for Amazon Web Services. They're being used by companies, developers, to basically replace their servers or their data center. How was this generated? Now everybody does web services, right? Microsoft has, IBM have it. But when we started in 1990, sorry, in 2006, it started from a necessity or from a situation, which is our business is a very, as a retailer, is a very seasonal business, especially in the Western world. So we have 40% of our revenue in two months of the year, three months of the year, Q4, which basically means you have a lot of assets that are underutilized during the other nine to 10 months. True for servers. So the idea is if we build services and APIs for which other companies can attach to, we can actually rent out our unused space. Many companies have said, that's a great idea, but it's not our competence. We don't really know how to do it. We thought it was a great opportunity, and that's the ability of Jeff and the executive, especially Jeff, to basically reinvent the way we do things and you know, hire the right people, create a separate group that would be focused on that. So that's another great, great example. Web services. There's a question. So web services is essentially in some way leverages what Amazon already has in terms of its core computing equipment. But I was wondering what prompted the move into Kindle, uh, again in terms of the fact that it did not have hardware competency, and how do you see yourself versus like iPad or the Nook? So what is the question about iPad and the Nook? How do you see yourself positioned versus the iPad and the Nook? So the question is, Amazon Web Services is an example of something that we had and we just basically reshaped and rented out. But the Kindle was something totally different. How did you come to that? And how do you see the Kindle versus the iPad and the Nook? So those are two different questions. I'll go to the first one first, which is the Kindle was, and I still remember, started, so the first Kindle came out in 2007, and we started hiring the, same, the first people to build the Kindle in 2004. The idea was about in 2003 huge resistance from inside the company. Myself first, I've been working 13 years in a hardware company, said we must be crazy building a hardware device. It's hard. And Jeff looks at me and the other two that were with me, and we're obviously wrong. History has proven us wrong. It's proving him right once again. Which is, yeah, you're right. We don't know how to build hardware. Guess what? We're going to learn. And started. Take us two years to hire people, create the manufacturing uh, but the idea he had in mind was already clear. We did not invent an ebook reader. Ebook readers already existed. Sony e-reader was already out. It just didn't have enough books, and it did not have the idea of wireless connection for which you can download. So the vision was every book in every language in 60 seconds. That's the vision that stayed, and the 60 seconds equal wireless and created the Nook. Uh, the Nook created the, the Kindle. I was thinking already the answer of the Nook. Cut this part. And, uh, yeah, it is really funny, actually. Uh, and I also remember one of the things that, because obviously, if, 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 if a customer buys a digital book, and now the customers buy way more digital books than physical books, the same customers, you cannibalize the sales of physical books, right? But the idea behind was, and I still remember the exact statement, which is, we don't want to be Kodak. We don't want to be a company that relies on printing pictures to see this huge revolution of the digital imaging coming and doing very little to change the printing, the picture business model. Books was, you know, the biggest cash generator for us. And it was a big, bold move. 
Uh, iPad is a huge tailwind for Amazon. iPad and all the same class of computers, the one, all the iPad tablets competitors that are coming out, will come out, are going to be a huge tailwind for Amazon because basically are going to have more and more people shopping online at different times of the days and different locations in the house. We just launched an iPad application called Window Shop that redesigned completely the way that you can do shopping. So, in fact, it's a different browsing experience. You don't have a mouse, you don't have a click, you have pinching, you have expanding. And so we're using the iPad as an example of Evolve shopping. And I'm not going to say anything about the Nook. Um, so, so you talked a little bit about um, your strategy for entering uh, different countries, but can you maybe talk a little bit about how you prioritize which countries to actually go in, like the, just the progression over time? So is the question is, you told us how you make decisions, but how do you prioritize the countries? It's easy. We started with country number two, then we went to country number three, and number four, we looked at the GDP. That's the most important part. And it did happen when we started in 2000. Uh, UK, sorry, 1998, UK and Germany were the two largest economies for e-commerce. Then we went to Japan, which was the number two in GDP. And then we went to France. And by doing those four countries, we actually, with the US, there were the five countries where 95% of e-commerce was happening at that time. So countries where payments were evolved, infrastructure was evolved, internet penetration was evolved. So those were very easy decisions. The hard decision was, do I keep expanding in Europe? Do I do China? And we decided to do China because it's one of the things where 10 years from now, you definitely want to be a winner proposition in China. But more countries are going to come up. And usually, the decision is simple. It's really size of the country, size of the opportunities. Great. Back there. Uh, can you talk more about how Amazon dealt with the uh, bigger players like Walmart coming in when Amazon was a small company? Question is how Amazon uh, dealt with Walmart and other big competitors when they came in. The answer is very easy. Be focused on the customer. Just keep improving the customer experience. Just making sure that the customer is happy, the customer is happy, the customer keeps coming back. That doesn't mean we ignore competition. I mean, we monitor competition. We look at what they do, selection they carry, the new technology. We do have a benchmarking activity. But the idea is stay head focused on the customer experience. That's what it is. I'm going to chime in with a question. Sure. So we spent a lot of time thinking about startup companies and how and the whole sort of Silicon Valley venture-backed background. And here this is a big company, up in Seattle, no less. And the question is, how do you maintain an entrepreneurial spirit as the company is so big? I'm going to guess that there's got to be a lot of infrastructure. There have to be rules. How do you keep this innovation and entrepreneurial spirit alive in such a big company? That's a, a great question, and since you had a mic, so everybody heard it, right? So we actually did have a, a meeting recently, an offsite meeting with Jeff and the Nagin team, which is how do we see the company at $100 billion and still be proud of the company, of working here? And the, 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 the answer was, well, we need to make sure that the company stays as it is today. That's a good intention. So what are the mechanisms to make it work? It's very, 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 very hard. I said very five times. What we are trying to do are things like keeping uh, hierarchy flat. We try to have 
very few levels between Jeff, us, and the rest of the company. So we, we have a rule for which every single vice president should never have less than seven, eight, nine, ten people reporting to them. At that point, if you have many people reporting to a vice president and you use the same methodology, you keep the company pretty much flat. And then things like you know, making sure that people are encouraged to make experimentation, are encouraged to make mistakes. Uh, it's, it's part of the philosophy, believe me, if you start from the top, it really, really makes it easier to reach that objective. Great. So but it's hard. Question from Steve Blank. Sure. Steve. Um, so in, 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 besides the Kindle and AWS, which I think are spectacular uh, uh, innovations. Yeah, I have nothing to do with them. Uh, <laughs> but if I look through the history, Amazon acquired something like 20 some odd companies since 1997. How many of the founders are still at Amazon? Of those companies, by the way, some of the names of the companies would give us a root canal thinking about the mistakes we made. <laughs> but I would say that uh, IMDb, I don't know, you, this is the biggest movie uh, website in the world, which belongs to the founders, is still there. And IMDb was acquired with the intention of just leave them alone. Um, I would say there are just a couple examples. Is that a strategy? Is something to learn from? You know, gee, is that? I mean, this brings up, you know, large company buying disruptive innovation. How do you integrate it? How do you not integrate? Every every that's that's a very good question. Every single case is totally different. And the good thing is, never apply a cookie cutter approach to this. There are some companies that we want to integrate, especially maybe the back end. You buy another retailer, you want to make sure that it's hooked up to our inventory management system. Don't change the customer experience on the front, but make it way more efficient. That's one example. Other companies like NDB, another company that we acquired called uh, ShopBop, in, uh, which is a fashion retail company, we didn't do anything. Is this a bad sign? <laughs> Should we leave the room? <laughs> anyway, so we didn't do anything. Others, like the company we acquired in China, Joyo, the idea was to fully integrate and make it become Amazon. We knew from the moment that we acquired a company, actually from the due diligence, pre-acquisition of a company, that that management team, two years later, would not be around. Actually, six months later, they were all gone. So it all depends. There's not one single recipe. Great. Do you have a question from the audience? Great. I was wondering, from personal experience and also your experience with Amazon, what do you think are the differences between European, specifically like Italian consumer taste versus American taste versus some taste in Asia? All right, did you hear the question? The question is, uh, are customers in Europe, for example, in Asia, have a different taste for products, for buying products? And yes, specifically about Italian and Americans. When it comes to buying clothing, I can tell there is a difference. Especially if you live up in Seattle, oh my God, there's a big difference. But anyway, uh, the merchandising organizations are all local. So there are products that are clearly easy to identify because they're pretty much steady. There's very clear data on the demand, like books, music. They're all different by countries. But the forecasting algorithms we build, they are the same. So we, we do have a way to identify 
how demand spikes in different countries. There are global phenomena that are bought anywhere in the world, like Harry Potter. Pretty much you have the same curve, the same demand. And it's, we can predict exactly, looking at how much Harry Potter 5 did, how much Harry Potter 6 is going to be doing exactly every single country. And then there are fashion-driven products. Fashion-driven products, those are the most difficult to forecast. It is still an art more than a softer system. So it, it all depends on the type of products. So, Diego, let me ask you another question. This is a personal question. What keeps you up at night? I mean, what are the biggest challenges that you face? Here you work in this you know, company. It's a well-oiled machine. You know, what are the biggest challenges you face? So... Um, the good thing is that I do sleep, literally. Now, in between those, um, I would say it is still about how do we make sure that we keep innovating on the customer experience? How do we make sure that we don't fall in love with our number one position? Because when you are number one, you, you, don't, you cannot become number one plus. <laughs> The worst thing that can happen, you become number two and number three. So basically, is how to keep uh, innovating for the customers and making sure that you don't become arrogant. You don't become uh, unnice. And when you become a big company, it's easy to be perceived as such. So this is something that really keeps us awake at night and is something that we keep, need to work on. Like, example, how to establish a relationship with the authors that is not a cyborg relationship, that we are not just a machine for which the authors are happy if we sell lots of books, they're unhappy if we don't sell enough books. And those are all things that are, as I said, really, really hard. So it's basically pretty much the same answer I gave before. Great. Any other questions? Yes, right here. Kind um, of with regards to your experience at Endeavor and working for entrepreneurs in developing countries, do you really see a difference between entrepreneurs in developing countries and those in Stanford and Silicon so the question is about my uh, non-paid -work, non work experience with Endeavor, and if I see differences between entrepreneurs in developing countries and maybe entrepreneurs here in the US or in Europe. Is that a good summary of the question? I would say no, and I'd like to hear your opinion too. For two factors. Number one, most of the time those entrepreneurs, they have a education experience or a work experience coming from either the US or Europe. And the common denominator is oftentimes that those are people that studied, worked in the US or in Europe, most of the times in the US, go back to their country, either it's Chile or Jordan or South Africa, and they be, become entrepreneur there. So I don't see that much of a difference from that perspective. Um, what I notice that the enthusiasm from those entrepreneurs is phenomenal. It's really because they know that all the things they can do there, they can really impact on that country. I mean, if you have, there are companies in, in a country like Chile, whose GDP is probably one quarter of the one of California, where two or three companies could make a big impact on the GDP of that country. So it's more the weight that a local success can be to the country itself. Because if you think about it in the US, I mean, even a huge success like Microsoft or Amazon or Apple, they're a small fraction of the overall GDP of the United States. I agree with you completely. In fact, I'd say that uh, one of the differentiators is in these countries, they're actually tackling really big local problems. 
So not only are they motivated to you know, support themselves, they're motivated to, to really do something that's going to have a big positive impact. Yep. Another question, yes. What value does Zappos bring to Amazon? Shoes. <laughs> the question is, what value is Zappos bringing to Amazon? For those who don't know, Zappos is a big shoe retailer that we acquired recently. And the shoe retailer that with us has a lot in common, especially when it comes to building a great customer experience. So it really helped us to make a strive into the fashion business, something for which Amazon is, was not, and it still is, very little in the top of the mind of customers when it comes to products. If you say Amazon, people would say books, music, electronics, but seldom would say shoes and apparel. So this is why Zappos was part of the strategy of keeping a separate brand, recognize Amazon as part of a fashion company. Yes? Great. I'm curious about how Amazon approaches the M&A process. I mean, do you have an internal team that is continuously tracking new companies? And if so, I mean, how do you um, make sure that the company that you're acquiring fits in your, uh, in your, like, in your philosophy, in your... Sure. So the question is, basically, how do you do M&A? How are we organized, and how do we make evaluation? So to the first question, which is, do we have an internal group? Yes. It's such an important asset of the company that it's something that we don't want to give out that much. It belongs to the way we do business. Also because our philosophy is so peculiar, is so unique, that you don't want to teach to a banker or an external company every time the way we look like. Uh, which, by the way, a parallel I'm drawing here, even executive search, most of the executive search at Amazon is done internally. We have an executive search team. So we seldom, we do, but we seldom use external search companies. So that was the answer to your first question. And the second one is the portfolio company we look at goes, it's very difficult to give one answer. It goes from you know, Zappos as a retailer to a technology company to we acquired a company that helped us uh, take pictures of barcodes for mobile computing, which is going to be the next big evolution of, uh, of e-commerce. So <clears throat> it really depends on every company. We do acquisition of multi-hundred million dollars to acquisition of a few million dollars. So we have a, a very qualified team of uh, business development experts that work with the business owner of that team. The good thing is that we, at Amazon, and this makes me smile when other companies have it, we don't have like a strategy department. Your companies have a chief strategist officer, like if thinking strategy is different than thinking your own business. There is not such a thing. Every single owner of the business needs to know what the strategy is, whether it's growth or acquisition or organic or other way. Great. I'm going to give the last question to Steve Blank. So, so what's interesting about Amazon is it's followed the model of Apple, Oracle, Microsoft, where the founders um, were the exceptions that actually stayed running the large corporation. In fact, most entrepreneurial startups see the founders replaced by an operating exec. Um, what would happen to Amazon when Jeff Bezos you know, decides to retire? I mean, what is it about <coughs> DNA? So the question is, uh, Amazon is a company in a small handful of companies like Apple or, or, or Oracle or, uh, who else did you mention? Microsoft. Microsoft well, but it's gone. Years. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Apple, Steve, came and went. Um, 
So the question is, what happens if and when Jeff goes away? So first of all, Jeff is really young and not going to go anytime soon. He owns a big chunk of the company, and he's so passionate about building the next thing. And he's all over the details of the company still, so there is no short-term issue with that. But the real answer is that he has been able to build such a deep, entrenched culture of passion, of innovation, and customer centricity that it is in the company. Now, he definitely pushes the edge. He pushes the envelope a lot and in Kindle, you know, something that he really had in mind. But now there are many things in the company, highly innovative, that really happen outside of what Jeff thinks. And, uh, and I do think that the company has succeeded in building that culture of uh, innovation, even without the founder being around. So join me in thanking Diego for coming all the way from Seattle. To you Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.